We're back to being a normal country. We're back to being a country. The British Dream Podcast. Join us. Powerful people. As we launch our despicable acts like these. And the sickening and barbaric politics. What I hate about this is that it's so violent. When the next phase of this disaster comes, they will come for you. I work in a supermarket um, and uh, it's a thankless job. You get treated like shit by the customers and the bosses. Just the other day I had this bloke come up to me, this customer, just stared at me. He didn't say anything, he just said Don Mio. And, you know, I just looked at him and said, I don't speak Italian. Do you know what I mean? It gets to a point where you just, you've had enough. Hello and welcome to probably the darkest politics podcast around the British stream. It's election time and we're doing this once a week for a bit. You've got me, Simon Childs, Home Affairs Editor at Vice.com, and the band is back together, Zing Sing. Hiya. And Johan Koshi. Hello. This week we're talking crap campaigning, precarious protests and lacklustre local elections. Every vote for me and my team will strengthen my hand. Try to calm down. Give me the mandate to leave Britain. And behave like an adult. Theresa May's campaign seems to be consistently embarrassing and robotic, while Jeremy Corbyn is surprising everyone by being a picture of charm, or at least vaguely looking like he actually wants to be there. But polling suggests the public have the opposite perception, that the Tories are having a great campaign and Labour are doing badly. Do you think it matters whether or not a politician can eat chips without looking like a strange robot? I mean, on a practical level, of course it doesn't matter. Like, It doesn't mean anything about the policies they stand for or what they actually believe in. But on a symbolic level, I think these things signify to the wider population a lot about what a politician actually is, even though obviously we all know that everyone looks like a fucking moron eating any kind of food or inserting anything into their mouth. I mean, because if you take a picture of someone eating chips with a really fast shutter speed, you're going to get them looking weird. You will end up with several where they just look like a demon from hell. Um, which I think is probably what happened with Theresa May. But, you know, obviously now we look at those pictures and we think, God, she's so, you know, she can't even eat chips like a normal human being. What does this say about her as a person? It's stage managed, right? She, Someone has made her from her team eat these chips because chips are a normal food that normal people eat. Um, and so in that sense, she's, I, I don't feel that sympathetic if it goes wrong because she's setting herself up for this kind of like, as you were saying, very symbolic encounter with normal life. Uh, and if it goes wrong, it's just blown up in their face. Yeah, a lot of this comes from those images, you know, it would be like Tony Blair and Gordon Brown having ice cream and that each of them in their own moment will come to mean different things, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the Gordon Brown, Tony Blair ice cream thing, I think, came across differently at the time. And it looked like they were kind of cool and like... <laughs> yeah, cool Van- vanilla. I don't know, <laughs> but it, but it, I think it came across fairly well. Shirts rolled up, you know, by the yeah, sea, having a having great relaxing time, yeah. sharing an ice cream with the shadow chancers. You Looking do not at all like they hate each other. <laughs> What's good about these moments is they open the space up for memes, which are obviously a very, as you were saying, very democratic way of. Um, sort of con- uh, controlling and editing and remixing the images that are given to us uh, during these st- stage-managed election campaigns. So there was there was good stuff of Theresa May because her face was kind of askew as she was eating it. Mm-hmm. People were suggesting she was gurning and that she found herself being photoshopped into sort of like rave scenes. And uh, um, so, I mean, these are all good things to come out of it, I guess. Anything that helps poke fun at someone who's almost definitely going to walk the election is a good thing, no? And I do think these things have a bit of purchase. Like I was in um, 
Clacton before the by-election when they elected Douglas Carswell as the first UKIP MP. And one of the people I spoke to there, I was like, who are you going to vote for? And he kind of went off on this... Um, went off in this patter about how, well, Nigel Farage is a good bloke because he can drink a pint in the pub, whereas Ed Miliband can't even eat a bacon sandwich. This is like two years ago, obviously. But it was it was completely and totally from these kind of mediated perceptions of people that he was like drawing his opinions of whether or not these politicians are a good person or a bad person. These things do sort of seem to matter in a weird way, whereas some of the finer political messages don't at all. I mean, I think Johan, you were looking at some polling about how the campaign seems to be going so far, saying like not many people had heard the term strong and stable yet. Journalists and people into politics were making fun of how much Theresa May was repeating strong and stable ad nauseum, and so all the Tories and PMQs, which no one watches, and you know these campaign managers, which campaign events, which no one watches, and I think 15% of the population had heard the tagline or the you know the catchphrase or the slogan strong and stable uh, 15% um, and that's it being repeated uh, a, a comical and absurd amount of times so which goes to show just how, uh, how little th these really matter um, and how um, how much of a you know, dilemma labor is in because their their corresponding slogan for the many not the few um, first of all doesn't really have the sort of alliterative immediacy of strong and stable and also if 15 percent have heard strong and stable i mean it, literally no one would have heard for the many or the few maybe what we're seeing is like all these campaigns are doing is playing to the very small number of people in the electorate who are actually passionate or like mildly engaged enough to actually get out to the voting booth on polling day and that you know, to a certain extent, maybe the political parties have resigned themselves to an incredibly low turnout. I mean, the ho the holy grail of slogans is obviously take back control. That's the thing that everyone like really wants to kind of they want to be able to access that like deep unmediated something inside the electorate that just desires to take back control. So so that even momentum with their well transformed event, which is like these so take back real control. Or exactly. So they, they had to try and reappropriate this incredibly effective slogan, which comes a slogan of the right, to sort of take back actual control, you know, not from Brussels but from the the, the ruling class and the capitalist class. Which is true, but the fact that they're really having to use this this yeah. language which feels kind of sort of uh, unsavory in, in in your mouth because of its association with Brexit yeah. goes to show how hard it really is to get a good good message. So election 2022 will just be like five parties all saying different <laughs> versions of yeah. take back control. <laughs> yeah. Control back now. Yeah. yeah. Take control back. Yeah. Get back control. But really this time now. Control Do it right for now. now. Yeah. Actual control. Yeah. Threats against Britain have been issued by European politicians Um, so May called together this slightly scary speech about the EU this week, saying they were trying to influence the elections. Uh, what was going on there? It was a really weird intervention. It came after this newspaper story from a German newspaper, which came on Sunday, which gave a pretty devastating account of her meeting with John Cold Juncker. It's really kind of cringy. 
to read, right? It basically described this dinner they had last week at Downing Street and uh, showed how delusional the British were. They didn't really seem to understand, uh, or at least were conveying the sense that they didn't, they didn't understand the magnitude or the severity or the complexity of Brexit. And he famously left saying, I'm ten, ta- ten times more sceptical than I was before I arrived. And members of his team suggested that there's now a 50% chance that the negotiations will, will break down. Um, so that got spread through sort of British journalists. A, a more favourable account was published in the Sunday Times. Um, a lot of people in this... In, you know, in these circles, was talking about it, and uh, so I think you could partly read this this um, uh, this speech in which he accuses you know Brussels of meddling in the sovereign affairs of Britain um, as a response to that. But as you were saying, uh, the EU, uh, you know, they're not great, but one thing they don't care about is domestic elections. Right, yeah, um, but they, they also just in terms of Brexit and negotiations, they don't really care who, like, if Theresa May has a strong mandate or not. It's a famous. It well, doesn't yeah. seem like they're, like they're they're not going to be nice because Theresa May's got a really good mandate to go ham on like fucking bullshit hard Brexit. Like they're going to try and make Brexit uncomfortable and unpleasant for Britain either way because there's 27 other member states in whose interest it is to do that and they're not going to go oh well the British people have spoken now yeah. again. Yeah, like it's, they it's don't care. Respect the will of the British people. I mean, it's kind of like if you dump a guy. That guy has no obligation to be nice to you back, especially if you come begging for your things back. <laughs> yeah, there's this weird, like, surreality about, about um, well, like, inflated sense of importance that, like, cons- certainly conservative politicians in the UK seem to have about our, like, place in the world. And I saw it at the Tory conference last year, this kind of feeling of... Um, yeah, thrusting new global Britain in the fucking world, like like it's. I got the impression they've been watching loads and loads of Hornblower reruns on ITV4, <laughs> <laughs> and like they thought that was what diplomacy was, and yeah. we were gonna like get some wind-powered ships and take over the world again. Yeah, I think yeah. some some have pointed out how this is basically during the last big European crisis, which is the Greek like debt crisis, the Eurozone crisis, uh, Yanis Varoufakis, who was in the series of government, went to Brussels and he went with this like mandate from the people, this renewed strong mandate from the Greek people. And again, they were like, we, we don't, we, we don't care. Right. There they are 27 under, care. yeah. We because commented on about how stupid they were to think that anyone cared, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, especially the European the Commission, which is on Kulduka's thing, like they are, you, they're like, they represent like the abstracted will of Europe, not the individual like parliaments of all these pe- of all these uh, sort of di- separate member states. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's also interesting, I guess, that the whole accusing of a foreign power meddling with your elections um, kind of synthesizes those two kind of things which are in the air, which was the whole uh, thing we have from America and Russia and Trump and all that like nonsense about Russia, Russia influencing, influencing the, the election, election yeah. and the whole take back control discourse of Brussels intervening in Britain. Those two, two things were out there and she perfectly you know, synthesized them into Brussels and now it's not only stealing our sovereignty. Putin, yeah. yeah, but exactly, yeah. That oh, everything outside these mm-hmm. this country is a nefarious, conspiring sort of uh, shadowy force designed to undo the will of the British of the British people. Yeah, and I think it's actually quite dangerous because you're essentially accusing the European Union of engaging in shadowy espionage level type hacking or you know whatever that you know a lot of people associate now with the U.S. elections in Russia. Mm. Um, and, you know, this is not exactly the best thing to go into if you're trying to negotiate a good deal with the organisation that you've just broken apart from. It was June the 8th and we the end of May. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. As Marxist theorist, Rihanna, what... 
As Marxist theorist Rihanna once said, work, 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 work. <laughs> the, first of, <laughs> the first of May was May Day, an ancient springtime ritual where peasants and serfs dance around the latest YouGov polling to ce celebrate Theresa May in all her glory. Either that or it's International Workers' Day, a celebration of stuff like the eight-hour day, which had been wrestled from the bosses by angry prolls over the years. We'll talk about Labour's plans to end the rigged economy in a bit, but first, check these guys out. On Sunday, I headed down to Brighton for an event called Precarious May Day to talk to some angry delivery riders and pissed-off shelf stackers. Apparently, the living wage is a good idea. So, since it became a living wage employer, staff retention has been better, staff morale has been better, right took it to his good. Solidarity! If anything's happening that you're not happy with, just get a few people together with the same interests at heart and just go out and try and change shit because that's the way shit's done. We deserve sick pay and we deserve the minimum wage, which delivery have said is difficult to commit to. Um, at the end of this month, we're actually taking delivery to court. Delivery spread this propaganda that if the union campaigns against self-employment, then the union is anti-flexibility. But um, we'd like the riders to become limby workers, where we're self-employed, but our business forms part of deliveries. So we get things like sick pay and minimum wage, which is completely reasonable, but um, we're still self-employed. So it works for both parties. And you're saying you want to um, give your pre-election message. What, what is that message exactly? The Greens and Labour are kind of doing deals for each other to kind of give each other's voters to each other. And we'd really like to say to those campaigns, we are the five million under the min under the living wage in this country. You know, we deserve a voice, and you know, parties need to like take note of that in this upcoming election. We're not going to be slaves anymore. We deserve respect and we deserve to have a decent living. We ride with you. Come and ride with us. We as a group are not necessarily just going to put up with the terms of our employment being dictated by the employers. Because the funny thing about that is we're not even technically employees. So before we even have this relationship of them as our employers, we need to get the fact that we are workers and that will make the company accountable for our welfare. It seems pretty Victorian, it seems pretty regressive that a company should be allowed to have workers out there providing a service, which they then, you know, blag and term as self-employed. Apparently I'm a business, apparently I and we as a collective are a mosaic of small businesses. How do you feel about being a young, thrusting entrepreneur? I mean, you know... <laughs> I've never had any ambition to be a businessman. That's not what I'm about. All I want to do is get paid, and that's it. We don't want to destroy delivery. We don't want to bring it down. It's not a violent, you know, revenge vendetta thing. It's more about us having a negotiating position. It's more about us coming together and being able to talk and, and have some, you know, control over the terms of our employment. That's it. We 
think this country is underpaid. Most people in the public sector have had no pay rise for several years. Many in the private sector had no pay rise at all for a long time. And paying people the higher wages, a living wage, means it's easy to keep in, make ends meet, obviously, but it also means they've got a greater spending power. It is a benefit across the whole economy. I work in a supermarket. Um, and, uh, it's a thankless job. You get treated like shit by the customers and the bosses. Just the other day, I had this bloke come up to me, this customer, just stared at me. He didn't say anything, he just said, Don mio. And, you know, I just looked at him, I said, I don't speak Italian. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it gets to a point where you just, you've had enough. Living wage, living wage, living wage, living wage. Yeah, so this protest is about, we want a living wage. We want £10 an hour. We want our wages to reflect the cost of living and is, is a low wage something you are struggling with at the moment uh, yeah absolutely yeah like I I bring home about 700 pounds a month uh, rent is 400 uh, might be 450 I think it's 450 and then bills on top of that it's another 70 odd quid so I'm left with like yeah, about 100 150 ish to uh, buy food uh, to enjoy myself to live a life you know what I mean? It's, uh, it's not ideal. I think there's a problem in terms of how we define employment and self-employment at the moment that the economy has changed and there's now a whole load of people who are working in mixtures of employment and self-employment in different kinds of uh, employment or self-employment and I think what's important is that all of those workers get the rights they deserve. I think some of the things that the Labour Party is asking for are probably very positive um, and I would encourage everyone to go out and vote but personally I'm not a member of any political party and I don't plan to support any particular political party. They were paying me less than the minimum wage and uh, they just told me that it's the way that they work and it's quite normal in the rest of the restaurants of that street and in Brighton. I mean, as an Audi paid lecturer, your work is always precarious, so I'm, I'm, I don't know whether I'm going to teach next term. Also, um, there isn't enough teaching for everybody to work on that contract um, uh, for a living wage, basically. Uh, workers get so, some employment rights, like a bit of sick pay and holiday pay. Um, it's like a, a step between self-employment and employment. So if we can't get full employment status, worker status will be a lot better than self-employed. Solidarity The living wage and workers' rights are at the top of the agenda for the British dream. The working world has changed, but it kind of feels like this election, Labour are the only party talking about this stuff so far. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen the details of it, but uh, McDonald did announce uh, he, he was going to end the Labour government would legislate towards ending zero-hour contracts, which is obviously a very serious, like, dramatic policy, which would go down well with a lot of people, um, as well as increasing the minimum wage to £10. Pounds. Um, so in that sense, they do seem to have this sensitivity towards the composition of, like, the way people work today, which is as those people were saying, precarious. Yeah, and also in terms of these people sort of like taking action for themselves, I think that speaks to a sense that 
while Labour is talking about these things and a lot of their policies seem pretty good, they, there's an extent to which maybe they don't quite understand the nature of work as it is with these kind of quite blunt legislative measures because um, for instance we had an article on Vice this week by a hospitality worker saying that Labour's policies are basically good but they don't take into account stuff like basically all the loopholes and I think there needs to be a kind of conversation beyond like just legislative mm -hmm. nice like measures yeah. that would be good on paper and talk about like the real nature of work and the fact is that a lot of employers are just getting around things at the moment. Yeah, I think Labour needs to kind of articulate an identity for these for low-paid workers that goes beyond, well, you can just, you know, if we, if you vote us in, we'll give you ten pounds an hour, um, and I think that's the reason why a lot, why that, why that message hasn't resonated yet, because, you know, while we might be able to see the similarities between, you know, an uh, an Amazon temp worker and you know someone who works in a in gourmet Burger King for gourmet Burger Kitchen for like very low wages, like there's not a lot that connects the two. Um, there isn't really a sense of shared identity because, you know, they don't have access to a union or they're not allowed to unionize. Um, and Labour needs to step in and say, you know, you are the people who are being screwed over by the Tories and we are the people who are able to give you a sense of pride in your work, but we're also going to make your working life better for you. <laughs> How much will they cost? They will cost... They will... It will cost... Um, about... About £80 million. So last night, local elections took place around the country. Counting's still happening, but it seems like the Conservatives gained, Labour lost, UKIP kind of died a horrible, painful death. What can we learn from this? I mean, well, with UKIP dying a horrible, painful death, hopefully this means the end of UKIP. We can but hope. We can, we can but hope. I feel, like, I feel like we've predicted that a million times over like the last three years. Yeah, and they always seem to find a way to keep coming back like herpes. Was the, the assimilation of UKIP into the major governing party, mm -hmm. which, if anything, is worse than the end of UKIP? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to... Uh, there seem to be some contradictory interpretations of the results coming out so far, and it's hard to know what to make of it. I mean, I, I, I wasn't up all night, you know, waiting for these seats to come in from, you yeah, know, early night, Worcestershire right? at early night, and uh, there seems to be a kind of consensus that normally when uh, you have the local elections and they aren't, like, three weeks away from a very uh, unusual general election, that uh, the opposition parties will do a bit well and the governing party will won't do that well and um that uh that then tends to kind of be muted when it comes to the general election so along that it seems to be not great for labor quite good for the tories because you'd expect them to do well to be like oh fuck the government but they've actually done quite badly and actually the greens have picked up seats as well oh really yeah they, i think they've picked up five seats so far and i think john mcdonald said it it wasn't the wipeout people were expecting which is, uh, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's I mean. just like the tyranny of low expectations, isn't it? Well, one of the more interesting developments, which we're just all looking at right now is on our phone, is that the Tories have missed out on gaining control of Northumberland County Council um, after an, an actual drawing of straws. What does that mean? Literally, literally, literally straws, straws were drawn because there was there was uh, there was a t there were two recounts and and I think there was there was one ward was tied uh, and. 
uh, straws. Someone found some straws, and they they were drawn between between three parties. What are the chances of exactly the same number of like Conservative voters and Lib Dem voters in one constituency turning out at the same time? I just like the idea that drawing straws might just be the default future of British yeah. democracy. Straws, if we're lucky, just like yeah. rocks, or just like people scrabbling for fistfuls of grass and soil. <laughs> who, who has the largest, you know? Yeah, this is the coalition of chaos that Theresa May was talking about. Just, you know, where everything is just decided by straws from now on. Yeah, and then candidates will be like, "Come on, like best of three. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, in the spirit of Northumberland, we're now going to do our own election predictions based on drawing straws or tea stirrers we found in the pub. Johan, you're Conservatives. All right. I will be Lib Dems and Zing, I'll you, be can be, Labour. you can be Labour. And so whoever, whoever gets the short straw becomes Prime Minister. Okay, so you want the short straw? You want the short okay. straw, yeah. All right, let's do it's it. Kind of bleak this gag. is the future of British this is This is more, you know, more reliable this than any poll yeah. you'll see. Oh, oh no, no, I've got a long, I've got a long poll. I mean, a long, a long straw. I also have a long straw. Zing. Oh, Labour's going to win. Oh, shit. I'm going to be Prime Minister. Hey. I knew it all along. <laughs> Jeremy <laughs> Corbyn, call me. You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, Labour victory. Hail Prime Minister Zing. <laughs> Thanks, Johan and Zing. That was the best draw poll we've ever had. The British Dream was produced by Sam Bonham at Rethink Audio. We'll see you again next week, midday on Fridays till the 9th of June, for sure. Stay positive. Mm-hmm.